Love, peace, unity, understanding, harmony amongst one another. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Rip, roaring, ready to go. I give you my sports talk podcast with entertaining value. I give you the most entertaining, thought-provoking podcast that you can listen to. Rate, review, subscribe anywhere where you listen to podcasts and you will not be disappointed. I give you football, basketball, baseball, college football, college basketball, UFC, MMA, and of course the loves of my life, the Georgetown Hoyas. And sometimes I might go a little bit farther and talk about what else is happening in the world. Wendell's World in Sports, the most awesome podcast that you can listen to, rate, review, subscribe anywhere where you listen to your podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the most unique, entertaining, and compelling sports talk podcast you'll ever listen to. Let's be great. Let's be great. Wendell's World in Sports with the one and only Wendell Wallace. Giannis charging down the lane to the rim. Double clutch. No good. Tipped in. Giannis tipped it home. Subscribe, rate, and review anywhere and everywhere you listen to this and all your favorite podcasts. And now, from Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Rip, Roaring, and Ready to Rumble, Wendell Wallace. know what we're talking about you know that music you know that theme song you know what time it is time to devour it time to love it time to feel it time to be all in it time to get down and talk some nfl football it is time now the season has changed the temperature is going down everything the leaves are turning the leaves are falling in some places in this country in some places in this world you know what we're talking about here in this country week one of the nfl season is now here and for the next 17 weeks I'm telling you right now, let it be known. Let it be known to your spouses. Let it be known to your children. Let it be known to other family members. Let it be known to your friends. Let it be known to other folks who don't understand the fact that every Sunday, if you're on the East Coast starting at 1 p.m. till the end of the night, do not bug me. Do not talk to me. Do not bother me. If we're speaking about watching football from 9 a.m., 10 a.m. in the morning all the way over till the end of the evening, do not talk to me. Do not come and bother me. I don't care. I don't want to hear your nonsense. I don't want to hear your noise unless we're speaking about a dire emergency involving your wife involving your husband involving your kids involving your family members do not un- under any circumstance come into this room and bother me while i'm watching my nfl football if you got the red zone on get them out of here if you're watching on direct tv and got access to all the games get them out of here it's nothing personal just get out get out get out 
get out. It's football. It's NFL football season. Anything else can wait till the end of the evening, end of the day on a Sunday. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. So that's what we're going to be speaking about. That's what we're going to be discussing. Before I begin, of course, I just want to say bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Que pasa, mi amigos? Mi llamo Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Konnichiwa, wassalamu alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Shalom, namaste, Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Before I begin, as always, I just want to make sure, first of all, are you doing well? You're doing good? You in the right frame of mind? You ready to uh, rip, roar, and get this thing going and started? But before we do that, are you going to make sure? Are you going to give me your word? Are you going to give me a promise that you are going to be doing everything humanly possible that you can to make your world, to make your block, to make your neighborhood, to make your space, to make your household a better place to be? Are you are going to give me your word? Are you going to be giving me your promise that are you going to be doing your very best to make sure that moving forward in this world, moving forward in this society, that we're going to do everything that we can through love, through peace, through unity, through harmony, through understanding, listening, learning, loving, respecting each other, regardless of a p- political affiliation, regardless of who you worship as a God, regardless of who you love as a person, regardless of uh, skin tone, regardless of financial background, regardless of whether you live on one side of the track or the other, regardless of anything negative, are you going to go ahead and do what you need to do within the small space, the small world that you live in to make sure that people around you are moving this country in a positive direction with love, peace, unity, harmony, understanding, love, respect for one another. Hope that you do that. Hope that we can do that, man. Don't do it for us. Don't do it for my generation. Don't do it to the generation. Don't do it for the generation before and after me. We're too far gone. We're too lost. Let's do it for the children. Let's do it for the teenagers. Let's do it for the young folks. Let's do it for the elementary school kids so they can go ahead and pass these lessons that we're teaching to them onto their children and then bringing it down and then bringing it down to generation to generation to generation. It starts right now. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. All right, man. Week one, the season has begun. You know, when I have some fun, and like Big Daddy King says, I get the job done. Thoughts and opinions. About week one, first part of the um, podcast, first segment, just going to give you the, just going to mention special dedications for those teams and those players who had a first, who had a very good first week, first day of work on the job. Uh, second, um, <laughs> second segment, I'm going to talk about some of the teams and some of the players who did not have a first good day on the job. Aaron Rodgers, Urban Meyer, Trevor Lawrence. The Buffalo Bills, but uh, we'll get into that. And then also for segments three and four on the podcast, going to delve into college football week two, talk about the upset of the week concerning Oregon over Ohio State, and then talked about some of the games that I saw on Saturday. So as I mentioned before, man, until the NBA season really starts, or maybe something happens interesting in Major League Baseball or something like that. The playoffs are right around the corner. But for the most part, the podcast that I'm going to be putting out here on Wendell's World of Sports is going to be football dominated, playing the hits, playing the things, talking about the sport that is just uh, inundated in the everyday of sports fans. 
here in this country of ours, football, whether it be the NFL, and if you're speaking about some regions down south, you know, you're speaking about some regions down in Alabama and Louisiana and Texas and Oklahoma and some other places, joning, jonesing about uh, what's happening with college football. So my podcasts are going to be directed toward those two sports subjects, of course, until the NFL season, excuse me, the NBA season rolls around and I am really, 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 really missing my Georgetown Hoyas talk dead season so far. And, uh, you know, these guys are in school, getting the schoolwork together, you know, working out, doing open gym. So there's really no news to report of any substance concerning my Georgetown Hoyas. But once uh, the season starts, sorry, fellas, I am going to be speaking with great reverence and great enthusiasm and great passion about my Georgetown Hoyas. But that's for another podcast a couple of months down the road. Let's get into it, man. Let's talk about what's happening in the NFL week one. Good day for the NFC West. Very good day for the NFC West. Now, this is a situation where I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again. All of these thoughts and opinions that I give, positive and negative, they are not going to be, this is just going to be for one week. One week and one week only. I'm not going to be projecting that all of a sudden teams that did great in week one are all of a sudden going to be pegged to be going to the Super Bowl or Super Bowl contenders or division champions or conference champions or be real players. Nor am I going to uh, go when we go to the uh, folks teams, franchises, players who didn't have a good week one. I'm not going to uh, start building a premise, not going to start building an argument, start building a foundation where I'm going to be saying, oh, sorry, the season's down the tank. Uh, season's already over. When is this quarterback going to be replaced? When is this coach going to be fired? When did this team, when are we going to uh, start, uh, you know, talking about how horrible and terrible this team is? That's not for me week one. Overreactions, underreactions, overreactions, that kind of stuff not happening on Wendell's world of sports. I'm just going to be taking my thoughts and opinions about this through one week, man. For those who I speak about in glowing terms for this week, might be on the other side, might be having me do a complete 180 and talk about what the hell happened between week one and week two for where in week one they looked fantastic and then week two they looked like garbage. Hey, man. It's all about the NFL. It's all about the storylines. It's all about the entertainment value. It's all about living in the world of the NFL. 16 games, a physical sport like football, a grind mentally, physically, emotionally. Very few, very, very, very few teams can steady themselves in terms of the consistency of excellence, regardless of how good a team looks, no matter how good a team looks on paper, no matter how talented a team might be, no matter how high the expectations are. Man, when you go from the first week now to the end of the week, especially when you're throwing in that extra week of uh, playing football games for real, hey man, we just take this bad boy one game at a time, one weekend at a time. And if you're a fan of the NFL, safer it, man. Every single week. Why are we thinking about week five or week 11 or week 16? Why are we doing that already in week one? Every single week, man, let's savor this bad boy. We only have 16, 17 weeks of this, 18 weeks of this. So come on, man. They only play 17 games. This ain't baseball where they're playing 162. This isn't basketball where they're playing 82. This isn't hockey where they're playing 80. This is only 17 games. They don't play on Tuesdays or Wednesdays or Fridays or Wednesdays. They don't play during those days, man. So let's just go ahead and every single week savor the moment. Savor the weekend. Savor the game. Savor the 
good and the bad that comes with it because I'm guaranteeing you, unless maybe you're a fan of the Houston Texans or maybe the Jacksonville Jaguars or maybe a, a team along that, uh, that doormat, you're going to be having some really good highs and some really good lows. And even with Jacksonville, man, Trevor Lawrence, there's something to uh, pay attention to, even if you're not down with the Jayvilles. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So a good day for the NFC West. Each team from that division was impressive in week one. Arizona, man. Didn't Arizona, wasn't Arizona supposed to be finished, picked to be finished last in the division? Now, after week one, after week one, after week one, they damn sure look really good, beating Tennessee on the road, 38-13. Another team who acquired Julio Jones to add to Ryan Tannehill's arsenal of uh, people that he could pass to, Derrick Henry being one of the elite running backs in the NFL starting the season, Tennessee starting the season at home. Arizona came in there, a uh, West Coast team going to the uh, eastern part as far as time zones are concerned and putting a whooping down on the Tennessee Titans, 38-13, man. Pretty, uh, pretty impressive. Kyler Murray, who for a little bit last season was in discussion of possibly being considered an MVP candidate. Well, he started off this year in spectacular form, 21 of 32, 289 yards, four touchdowns. DeAndre Hopkins doing DeAndre Hopkins type things. Six passes caught, 83 yards, two touchdowns. Christian Kirk caught five passes for 70 yards and two touchdowns. The team rushed for 136 yards on 33 carries. So we see that balance of 33 runs opposed to 32 passes. So you're speaking about close to a one-to-one ratio. And that was the offense. Cliff Kingsbury still using some of his um, philosophies and techniques that he uh, was... um, doing over at Texas Tech, one of the reasons why he got hired by the Arizona Cardinals, thinking outside the box, having that quarterback in Kyler Murray who can who can uh, put together some of those things that he's doing, execute some of these uh, philosophies that he's had, but still trying to adjust in a way that it'll work in an NFL type of uh, way. That's still a work in progress, but when you got someone that dynamic as Kyler Murray along with an number one wide receiver like DeAndre Hopkins, it's going to mask some of the uh, fallacies, some of the deficiencies of an offense in Cliff Kingsbury when you're taking that spread open, wide open shot, whatever bullshit uh, offense he had in Texas Tech. Kyler Murray and DeAndre Hopkins can can mask some of that college stuff that Kingsbury still wants to put down. Is that going to be able to be consistent enough to get you into a space where you're going to be true contenders for conference championships in Super Bowl championships, that remains to be seen. But one thing that was for real, at least on Sunday, was that the Cardinals defense, that's going to be a motherfucker, man, when it comes to uh, what they did. Tennessee left tackle Taylor Lewan, who is a very good all-pro tackle, made Chandler Jones look like damn near Reggie White and Lawrence Taylor rolled into one. Jones had five sacks in the game. I think he had, what, three in the first quarter or some nonsense like that. The defense, speaking of Arizona, the defense held Derrick Hendry to 58 yards on 17 carries. I mean, it was a total team effort in terms of dominance dominance on both sides of the football. So Arizona started off the season on a very high note. Um, The San Francisco 49ers, game time decision to finally say, that uh, Jimmy Garoppolo is going to be the starter, at least for this game. 
Um, dominating performance on the road against the Detroit Tigers before falling asleep. They were up 41-17 in the fourth quarter, thought everything was cool, thought everything was good, thought everything was copacetic, thought everything was all said and done. And the uh, Detroit Lions said, hold on for a second. So after falling asleep, they had to uh, hold on a little bit, but still won the game 41-33. to I will say this. I know people want to sit there and say, when is Trey Lance going to play? When is Trey Lance going to play? And I mentioned it before, um, the situation where the moves that were made by John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan, head coach Kyle Shanahan and general manager John Lynch, the way that they moved and negotiated up to the third spot in the draft to pick Trey Lance. Many people, some fans and such, might be a little bit uh, um, hasty might be a little bit uh, on um, might be wanting to see uh, Trey Lance get in there a little bit sooner maybe than he should. The word I'm looking for is impatient. But as long as Jimmy Garoppolo stays healthy, at least for this season, he gives the 49ers the best chance to win this season. Now, what's going to be happening next season, we don't know. But against the Lions, and look, we're not speaking about a team that's going to be competing for a championship, at least based on Uh, the expectations and the previews and the week one um, performance. But against the Lions, he was 17-25, to uh, threw a touchdown, 314 yards. Lance played, but, you know, we're not speaking about, and it this doesn't have to be a dual quarterback type of system. This is not going to be some deal where, Garoppolo is going to play the first and then in the second quarter you're going to see Trey Lance more and then maybe depending upon how those two play we uh, were going to figure out at halftime based on who played well enough in the first and second quarters between Garoppolo and Lance who's going to start the third quarter and then we'll go from there and then maybe for the fourth quarter we might make a change and we might do what uh, the Miami Dolphins did last year with uh, Tua Tunga-Vailoa and Ryan Fitzpatrick. I don't think that the 49ers are going to be playing that game but I think in the way that they're going to be structuring this between Trey Lance and Jimmy Garoppolo, I think it's going to be advantageous for both players. You're going to have Jimmy Garoppolo, the known starter for this year, if he continues to play at the level that he played at against the Detroit Lions. Of course, he's going to be continuing to play. And you get more and you get a little seasoning. You get a little experience to a guy who's only played one season of collegiate football, and that was at the FBS level. In Trey Lance, you don't throw him to the wolves, especially when expectations with the 49ers are so high. You don't throw all of that on him. You don't throw all that responsibility on him. You let him marinate. You let him learn. You let him see what's going on. There's no shame in that. Just go ahead and ask Aaron Rodgers. Just go ahead and ask uh, Carson Palmer. Just go ahead and ask Steve McNair. Just, well, you can't ask Steve McNair now unless you dig, dig him up. Just go ahead and ask uh, Michael Vick, guys who sat for either the first year or most of the first year and learned before they took the reins of uh, being a starting quarterback. Ask Colin Kaepernick, who did the same thing, who uh, led his team once he became the starter for the 49ers under coach uh, Jim Harbaugh, leading them to the uh, Super Bowl. Um, So this is a situation where Trey Lance is the best of both worlds. He gets in, he gets a little bit of action, and he gets to uh, learn not only from the Shanahan system, but he also gets to learn in terms of being a pro, in terms of uh, being an adult, in terms of having a 9-to-5, or really, if you're speaking about the NFL, you're speaking about a much longer day in terms of preparation, film study, being a leader, all those type of things. And he's not thrown into the fire so quickly when he's not ready to be able to handle something like that. But uh, 
Lance played what? He saw what? Action in how many? One, two, three. Four snaps he took. He threw one pass, which went for five yards, a TD pass. Nice looking throw. Very nice. But the other three snaps were all running plays, and they accounted for two yards. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. That's no big deal. Like I mentioned before, the San Francisco 49ers, if you're a San Francisco 49er fan and you're looking to win the Super Bowl, then you got the best of both worlds. You got some play out of Trey Lance, once again, to get him on the field, to get his feet wet, so to speak. And you also got a really good productive game from Jimmy Garoppolo. Debo Samuel caught nine passes on 12 targets for 189 yards, including a 79-yard touchdown reception. Almost almost became the GOAT. And I'm not talking about Tom Brady, Irvin Magic Johnson, Bill Russell, Michael Jordan, Wayne Gretzky, Roger Federer type GOAT. But I'm talking about the, <laughs> you fucking asshole. I'm talking about that type of GOAT where he uh, fumbled the ball when he had a first down, which could have iced the game, which was recovered by the Lions with a little bit over a minute left to go with the score 41-33. Luckily, the defense for San Francisco stepped up and made the play, but um, Samuel had a really good game with the exception of that blunder. But, uh, you know, with with San Francisco, let's also forget, let's not forget that um, Kyle Shanahan, head coach Kyle Shanahan, He's not just a guy in terms of uh, developing quarterbacks. Uh, this is a guy in terms of, if you take a look at his offense, it's based off of balance. This is not a situation where, you know, he's this, you know, new age, out of the box, unbelievable new age, throw the ball around the yard 50, 60 times. No, 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 no. No, I, I, I'm, I'm on a situation where, look, it doesn't matter who it is. As far as him being the head coach, I think that he vies. I think that he strives. I think that he uh, places his uh, his medal and his accolades on having a balanced offense. So when you take a look at six-round pick Elijah Mitchell, who ran for 104 yards and had a touchdown on 19 carries, and you saw the run-to-pass ratio and the balance that the 49ers had on offense, running the ball 28 times for almost five yards to carry and then throwing it 26 times, averaging 11 yards per pass play. And we know about the run concepts and we know about the strength of Kyle Shanahan in terms of the running game, picking up from his father, who also was known for having fantastic, uh, having a fantastic running game. That uh, the key for the 49ers is not going to be Jimmy Garoppolo having to do everything. We're not asking Jimmy Garoppolo to uh, be a top five, top four quarterback. We're not putting the responsibilities on Jimmy Garoppolo. If you're a San Francisco 49er fan, if you're a coach, offensive coordinator, head coach, quarterback coach, putting the game plan together, none of the game plans is going to call for Jimmy Garoppolo to throw the ball 45, 50 times. Now, throughout the game, it might come down to that. But what I'm saying is you take a look at a team like the Green Bay Packers and how much they rely on Aaron Rodgers. You take a look before like a team like the New Orleans Saints and how much responsibility that they put on Drew Brees. You take a look even with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, not Tom Brady, but before that with Jameis Winston and the philosophy that Bruce Arians had and how many times he was asking Jameis Winston to throw the ball through the air and how many chances he needed to take and how daring that he wanted Winston to be, which led to Jameis throwing 30 interceptions in one year. With the San Francisco 49ers, and Jimmy Garoppolo, they're not asking him to do that. We're, we're not going to be asking Jimmy to, uh, you know, sit back and, you know, go go crazy. You know what I'm saying? So I think as long as they can get that nice, 
mixture, that nice balance of run and pass, which I would say 95% of the NFL teams want to do on a week-to-week basis, I think the 49ers will be fine. I think their run game is going to be strong enough. And I think, as I mentioned before, Debo Samuels is a receiver who I think is going to step up. They still have George Kittle at the uh, wide, at the tight end position, one of the better tight ends in the game still. So I think for the 49ers moving forward, I think that's going to be the recipe. And as I mentioned before, if they can keep Garoppolo playing at this level or somewhere near this level, then I think it's going to be advantageous again, both for him and for Trey Lance for when the time comes for Garoppolo to pass that baton in terms of being the starting quarterback for the team, in terms of being the franchise quarterback for the team. When that time comes for Garoppolo to pass that torch, to pass that baton to Trey Lance, he'll have some positive experience moving forward to deal with that. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. I think that the 49ers defense, speaking about some of the good things that happened in week one, I think the 49ers defense is not going to be the same juggernaut that it uh, was the last couple of years. Nick Bosa came back, had about four or five tackles, but uh, I think they're going to be relying more on the offense. But still, as I mentioned before, they're balanced enough to where, again, they're not going to be asking Jimmy G to be throwing the ball all around the field and having the offense score 31, 35 points a game for them to win the game. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about some of the good things that I saw in week one of the NFL season this uh, this weekend, this past weekend. Seattle, speaking about the dominance, speaking about the great start that the NFC West had. Arizona going to Tennessee, winning 38-13. Um, on the road, San Francisco going to Detroit and winning before falling asleep, winning handily 41-33. Seattle goes on the road, defeats Indianapolis 28-16. Russell Wilson, Russell Wilson was cooking, baby, on Sunday. He was Bobby Flay in that motherfucker. He was up there going Alex Bornicelli. I mean, he was the man in terms of cooking. Let Russ cook. He was cooking like an iron chef, man, through three of his four touchdown passes in the first half. Went 18 of 23 for 254 yards for the game. Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf combined for eight catches on five targets each for 160 yards. They combined Lockett and Metcalf for three touchdowns. And yeah, okay, Wilson was sacked three times. We know in the offseason, one of the disappointments and one of the angsts and angers and all of this negativity stuff that was coming from Russell Wilson stemmed from the fact that uh, he felt that he was getting hit way too much, placing the blame on the offensive line. Okay, he was sacked. Speaking of Wilson, he was sacked three times. But the offensive line played well enough for the running game. They gained 140 yards and averaged almost five yards per carry on 27 attempts. And more importantly, if you're a Seattle Seahawks fan, more importantly, if you own the Seattle Seahawks, More importantly, if you're a GM of the Seattle Seahawks, more importantly, if you're Pete Carroll, it was the effusive praise that Russell Wilson, the glowing comments that he made about new offensive coordinator Shane Waldron after the game. He said that the chemistry between Shane and I was great. It's been great all offseason. We spent a lot of time working on the game and working on what we want to do. We're all working together. It's a beautiful thing. 
Phew. All right. <laughs> Remember there was a time in the summer where in between speaking about Aaron Rodgers wants to leave and Deshaun Watson wants to leave, then Russell Wilson's name crops up and talking about, well, you know, if I'm not going to be playing in Seattle, I would love to play in Chicago and all this nonsense and all of this bullshit. At least for one week, everything is kumbaya with the um, franchise and Russell Wilson. And Shane Waldron, <laughs> Shane Waldron might be the co-MVP of this team because as long as he can keep Russ happy and cooking, then the Seattle Seahawks are going to be going places. The defense picked up where they left off in terms of efficient, if being uh, efficient. They held Indianapolis to 16 points, only six points after halftime. The Colts were a combined five of 16 on third and fourth down attempts. Jamal Adams with that new contract is up there making plays and feeling fine. Bobby Wagner is still doing Bobby Wagner's thing. So, the defense seems to be at a level to where if we can continue to get that offense moving, it seems like DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett are still on the path of becoming an elite wide receiving duo for Russell Wilson. And if we can keep Russell Wilson happy and the improvement on the offensive line can continue, then there won't be too many sleepless nights in Seattle. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about the good start, speaking about the uh, excellent beginning of the season for teams in the NFC West. One of the things that I saw that uh, wanted to speak about, the LA Rams, speaking of teams in the NFC West, the LA Rams won their home opener on Sunday Night Football. Are you ready for some football over Chicago 34-14? Are you ready for some football? Is that Monday night? The Rams won their home opener on Sunday night football over Chicago 34-14. Quarterback Matthew Stafford's presence was immediately felt. Jared who? Jared huh? Jared goof? Jared go away? Matthew Stafford, 20 of 26, 321 yards, three touchdowns. Through a 67-yard touchdown pass to Van Jefferson early in the first quarter. Would have been nice if the Bears actually would have been able to touch him while he was still on the ground, but I digress. Third quarter, through a 56-yard TD pass on a busted coverage to Cooper Cup to make the score 20-7. The Bears feisty. Feisty. 34-14, but it wasn't the dominance that you would think a score of 34-14 would be. Bears were a little bit feisty. But uh, in the end, the Rams scored on six of Stafford's first seven full drives. They had totaled, uh, they totaled 375 yards of offense. They went 7-12 to 12 on third and fourth down. And again, balance, balance, balance between the pass and the run. The team passed 26 times. They ran 23 times. Jalen Ramsey, nine tackles. Chris Collinsworth was mentioning the fact that uh, the new defensive coordinator or the uh, defensive coordinator for the Rams is putting – Ramsey more into the action for him to uh, be more of a um, contributor. Not that he wasn't a contributor, but, you know, him being a cornerback and him being one of the best quarterbacks in the league, the opposing offenses weren't going anywhere near him. So great. It's great that he was shutting down half the field, but it just bored the hell out of him. So now here's an opportunity for Ramsey to get himself more involved, to get him get his hands dirty, shall we say, get his nose a little bit bloody, shall we say, in a good way. And Ramsey's Ramsey likes that, and uh, you know he showed that physical quarter, more of a Rod Woodson 
in his prime at the cornerback position rather than the Deion Sanders as far as tackling, as far as, far as physicality is concerned, as far as mixing it up where the action is, um, is concerned. And you still have Aaron Donald still doing a thing for the uh, defensive side of the ball for the Los Angeles Rams. So it was a good start for all of those teams. As I mentioned before, if you're speaking about the power rankings in the NFL, the um, folks had the um, NFC West in terms of, you know, ranking teams 1 to 32. They had Seattle and they had San Francisco and they had the Rams somewhere in the top 10. And they had the, uh, this is according to NFL.com, the power rankings. They had Arizona 18th. So this is no surprise that these teams are going to be, should be, hopefully will be for their fan bases, uh, teams that will be reckoning, the teams, other teams will have to reckon with as the season moves along. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us, speaking about some of the good things, speaking about some of the players and the teams that had a very good opening week to the NFL season. Hey, man, let me ask you a question. Sit down for a second. Let me ask you a question. Does Jalen Hurts at quarterback make Philadelphia a viable playoff contender in the NFC East? We wouldn't have been saying that last year, right? At the beginning of last season with the Philadelphia Eagles, shit, we wouldn't have been saying that when he was benched for uh, Tua Tunga-Vailoa, when he was a uh, what, junior at um, Alabama, shit. We wouldn't have even been saying that when he was um, playing his senior year for uh, Oklahoma in college. So how about this, man? I, he, looked, he looked good. He was impressive. Now, it's Atlanta, so, you know, take it with a grain of salt, but still. Hey man, do we did we ever think that Jalen Hurts against anybody would be this impressive at any time, especially so young in his career? They got rid of uh, Carson Wentz. This is a team that's going to be clearly now. Jalen Hurts is the franchise quarterback. He's going to be the leader. He's going to be the face of the team now, based on character based on the type of person that he is, he has a whole lot of Dak Prescott type of qualities in terms of being a leader of men, being, you know, someone who other men are going to want to follow. So for his moral fiber and for his maturity and for his character, you couldn't think of a better person to be your starting quarterback. It was always based on, well, okay, his size, can he make all the throws? I mean, it was those type of things. And you could say that his first couple of starts or the first couple of opportunities that he had uh, last uh, season for the Eagles, it was uneven at best. Now, there was a lot of shit swirling around. There was the whole Doug Peterson thing, and there was the whole Carson Wentz thing, and everything was crumbling around around them and around them. So, I mean, you know, being a guy first year in the NFL, I mean, it was kind of hard to uh, be productive. It was kind of hard to put in any type of positive signs or positive play with that type of atmosphere, with that type of environment swirling around a first-year guy in the NFL at the most most important position on the field, which is quarterback. But, you know, we heard stories about, hey, you know, the uh, Philadelphia Eagles are sniffing around. Maybe they're going to have some interest in Deshaun Watson. And then they went ahead and traded for Gardner Minshew. And so I mean, there's been a lot of things thrown at Jalen Hurts which he's had to kind of deflect and ignore and keep his head down and keep doing what he's doing. 32 to 6 victory this past Sunday over Atlanta, 27 to 35, 264 yards, three touchdown passes. He rushed seven times for 62 yards. He looked I mean 62 yards. Yeah, he looked he looked good. 
He looks damn good. In fact, according to ESPN stats and information, Hertz posted his third career game of 250 plus yards and 50 plus yards rushing, becoming only the second quarterback to do so since the start of last season besides Arizona's Kyler Murray, who have a similar style of play. So on the Eagles' last possession of that first half, and we could just go ahead and we could just blend in, or I can just give you an example of how far and matured as a football player, quarterback, a professional football quarterback, Jalen Hurst has become. Look, at the end of the first half, he engineered a 62 play, a 60, I'm sorry, 12 play, 62 yard touchdown drive in one minute and 42 seconds. Went five or six on the drive, added three runs for 24 yards, including a uh, third and 11, excuse me, 11 yard run on a third and five situation. He's, uh, he's showing signs of, shall I say, hey man, you take a look at the NFC East. Besides Dak Prescott, who would you rather have a quarterback? If you're ranking the quarterbacks, and again, this is only one week, but after one week, if you're ranking quarterbacks in the NFC East, Dak Prescott, number one, based on experience and a resume that's already been, yes, that's pretty full compared to the other candidates, but my Washington football team has Tyler Henneke, Taylor Henneke. The New York Giants have Daniel Jones. I mean, are you going to pick those two over Jalen Hurts, especially after what you saw on Sunday? Maybe you will. Maybe next week, maybe against, I believe they play San Francisco. Maybe Hurts will fall back down to earth. I don't know. But as for one week, man, he looks really good. And take a look at what's happening with Philadelphia concerning his skill players. Philadelphia is building potentially a really good receiving and running back core that could maybe possibly in a few years be elite. If you're speaking about the wide receivers, Devonta Smith, who's only 22 years old, former Heisman Trophy winner, first-round draft pick for the Eagles in this year's draft, caught six passes on eight targets for 71 yards and a touchdown. Jalen Rieger, the 2020 first-round pick out of TCU, who's just 22 years old. Remember, Jalen Hurts is 23 years old. So Rieger, 22 years old, he caught six passes on six targets for 49 yards and a touchdown pass. And the young running back, Miles Sanders, second-round pick in the 2019 NFL Draft, who's only 24 years old. He ran 15 times, 71 yards, caught uh, four more passes on five targets for 49 yards. Hey, man. You know, the the, the Eagles are, are building something. They still have Zach Ertz. How much does Zach Ertz have left? We don't know, but he's still a, uh, he's still a, um, a tight end that needs to be accounted for and respected. So, look, man, I'm, I'm thinking about Jalen Hurts right now. And, again, Taylor Henneke, Daniel Jones in the NFC East. I'll put Jalen Hurts above both of those guys. And if you take a look at some of the other young quarterbacks in the NFC, Jordan Love still hasn't been able to sniff the field against the, I mean, uh, um, quarterbacking for Green Bay. And he got in against New Orleans near the end of the game yesterday, and he looked putrid. Justin Fields, we don't know about him. Trey Lance, we don't know about him. Kyler Murray seems to be the real deal. Sam Darnold, we don't know about him. Why can't I make the argument that Hurts couldn't be one of the better quarterbacks in the NFC in less than five or four years if he continues to progress like he's doing? Now, again, he played against Atlanta, and this is only one week. But, man, he, he looked good. He looked really good. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So other teams and players that had very good 
first week of the season, Jameis Winston and the New Orleans Saints. The Pittsburgh Steelers, they ain't done yet. They ain't dead yet, at least for one week. Their defense is going to keep them in a lot of games while that offense still tries to figure itself out. But, um, you know, going up the Buffalo and winning like they did, especially the way they turned it on in the second half. They still got T.J. Watt now that he signed his uh, contract extension, making him the highest paid defensive player in the league. I guess Aaron Donald is saying, excuse me. But, uh, you know, T.J. Watt is now signed, sealed, and delivered to the Steelers for him to play this season. So, at least on defense, Mika Fitzpatrick, still one of the uh, quality, impactful defenders in the league. So, you know, the Steelers still have a defense. Offense, I don't know. But, you know, I was speaking on my last podcast about, you know, the Bills and the Steelers passing each other in the night. The Steelers headed down toward mediocrity, and the Bills are headed toward elitism in terms of trying to win a championship elitism is that a word fuck it it is to me but uh hold on for a second them ships might be might be doing a u a u-turn based off of one week we don't know we'll go ahead and see but uh special dedication going out for the pittsburgh steelers and their performance especially on defense on sunday kansas city man they're still kansas city best team in the afc as long as patrick mahomes playing for the Kansas City used to be champions. Now, I think that the I think that the Cleveland Browns I don't think frustration should be the word. I think that uh it's a situation where it's like, you know what, man? Every time we play these guys, we get closer and closer and closer and closer. So, if you're going to be glass half full, it's every time we uh play these guys, we get closer and closer and closer. And this, uh, you know, the, the next time we play these guys will probably be in the playoffs. And it might be for the championship. Might for, be for the AFC championship. Glass half full, this is where we're going to get them. Glass half empty, we always find somehow, some way to lose to this team. And as I mentioned before, as long as Kansas City has Patrick Mahomes and as long as the offensive line can keep him somewhat safe and keep his jersey somewhat clean, then Patrick Mahomes is still going to find, always going to find a way to screw us, always going to find a way to beat us. So that's a glass, glass half empty perspective. If you're a Cleveland Brown fan, I would more go with the glass half full. I, I think that uh, Cleveland should be encouraged uh, from what they did on Sunday against the uh, used to be champions in the Kansas City football team. So, those are just some of my thoughts, opinions about what happened in uh, week one as far, as far as the positive were concerned. The NFC West getting down on the get down. Jalen Hurts, possibly an above average quarterback in the NFC sooner rather than later. Whoever thought that would have happened. And uh, as I mentioned before, Jameis and the New Orleans Saints. Hey, look, Jameis is not throwing, slinging the ball all around the field. Could be a situation where Jameis is going to be in line to get himself a nice little contract once this season's over with the New Orleans Saints and also cement Sean Payton's legacy as being one of the best offensive minds of his generation. Pittsburgh Steelers defense, defense, defense wins championships despite a mediocre offense. How quickly can the offense improve to where the Steelers are not going to have to rely on special teams and stifling defense week in and week out? And Kansas City, AFC still the best even though that gap is closing. So my thoughts, my feelings, my opinions about the positive of week one, I thought all in all for those teams going forward, moving forward this season, really encouraging. 
Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Speaking about what's happening, speaking about what's going down in the NFL. The segment before talked about some of the great things, some of the good things that happened in the NFL week one, the NFC West. We talked about Jalen Hurts. We talked about a little bit about Kansas City. As long as you got Patrick Mahomes, you're always going to have a chance to win that game, no matter what the circumstances are, unless your offensive line is completely obliterated and you're playing against one of the elite defensive lines in the NFL and one of the elite defenses in the NFL and one of the elite defensive coordinators calling the plays in the Super Bowl. Other than that, with Lamar Jackson, excuse me, with Patrick Mahomes, you've always got yourself a chance and also spoke about what was happening in terms of uh, Jalen Hurts in a few years. If this guy who many people, including myself, thought that he would never be in this position for me to say something like this, for me to speculate on this, Is Jalen Hurts going to be that guy in the next couple of years that can be a quarterback who can be successful in leading his team to uh, championships, division championships, conference championships, and be part of a team that can win a Super Bowl? Again, if you take a look at the quarterbacks right now, especially the young quarterbacks, why would you not at least entertain that type of uh, sentiment? Why would you not at least entertain that type of opinion, which I just put out there about Jalen Hurts. So that was some of the things that I was speaking about the last uh, segment of my podcast. Now, let's just talk about some uh, teams. Let's just talk about some players who uh, started off poorly, started this first week of the season very poorly. The Green Bay Packers falling to the New Orleans Saints, 38-3. Not a very good day for Mr. A. A. Ron, Aaron Rodgers. Finish with no touchdowns, two interceptions. The last interception, they were just like, well, it just looked like it was just one of those screw it passes. We're done. We're getting killed. We're getting obliterated. I'm not having it. I'm not feeling it. Nothing's going right. So someone just get me out of here. This game's over. And I'm going to signify the fact that we have waved the white flag by throwing this ridiculous pass, which was picked off deep, deep down the field late in the game. So 37%. QB rating. He was 15 of 28 for 133 yards. So Aaron Rodgers starting off his defending the MVP season, not very good to say the least. In fact, it was putrid. It was horrible. I know people are going to read into this into thinking that, oh my goodness gracious, you know, Aaron Rodgers, all the things that went down this summer, his wanting, his needing, his yearning, wanting to get out of there that, uh, you know, maybe this is Maybe this is some type of, I wouldn't say payback, but this is some type of, uh, this, this, this is some type of uh, residue left over from some of these hard feelings that Aaron Rodgers had and the fact that he wasn't traded. And I'm not going to buy into that. This is Aaron Rodgers. This is the guy who's one of the greatest quarterbacks of his generation. This is the guy who's a Hall of Famer. This is the guy who's coming off an MVP season. And this is the guy who I think has a lot of pride in himself. And um, not going to be, he's not going to be tanking the season. I don't think so. It's just a weird game in general. I mean, here at the Green Bay Packers playing in Jacksonville against the New Orleans Saints in a in a stadium that's largely rooting for the Packers, even though it's a road game. And the Packers travel well. The Packers faithful and the fan base travels well. So that's not something that's out of the unordinary. But it was just, every just... Everything just seemed a little fluky. Everything just seemed a little bit off. So, I mean, this is, I'm just going to take this as a write-off in terms of the performance, not only Aaron Rodgers, but also the Green Bay Packers, just like the same situation with the Buffalo Bills losing like they did to the Pittsburgh Steelers. I know circumstances were different when you're speaking about 
Green Bay losing and Buffalo losing, but two teams that went to their respective conference championship games the last season before losing to uh, Kansas City and Tampa Bay, respectively. I, I don't think that uh, those guys speaking about Buffalo and speaking about Green Bay are going to be falling off the cliff that easy to mediocrity. Um, just think that they have too much talent. I just think that this is a blip on the radar. I think the Packers have an excellent opportunity next week on Monday Night Football to get things right when they play the Detroit Lions. So I'm not going to be reading into this in terms of, uh, you know, anything that might signal the end of the Aaron Rodgers, Green Bay Packers relationship in terms of them winning championships, them vying for championships and those type of things. It was just, it was just one bad day. Every team for the most part has a bad day. It doesn't really mean that much. I mean, damn, weren't we speaking about um, on a Sunday night football game last season, how New England, excuse me, how, um, um, New Orleans just destroyed Tampa Bay at Tampa Bay. And I think that was the game where I think Tampa Bay ran the ball like five times or some nonsense like that. And Tom Brady threw like three interceptions in the first half. I mean, he was awful. He was terrible. He was, he was just absolutely positively terrible. And that was, that was near the middle of the season. Wasn't the beginning of the season. So everybody, every team goes through uh, a poor day, goes through an off day. Green Bay just happened to have theirs the first game of the season. There'll probably be another game or two where we might question what's going on with Green Bay because they're not going to be playing the type of football. They're not going to be playing up to the level of uh, excellence that we think they should be playing. But I'm putting my trust in Aaron Rodgers. I'm putting my trust in the resume. I'm putting my trust in what they've been doing the last uh, couple of seasons in terms of the success that the team has had. And I'm going to uh, stick with them in terms of saying that, again, this is just a blip on the radar screen. It happens to every team where they just come out. They just don't have it. I would rather see the Green Bay Packers. If you're a Green Bay Packer fan, I would rather see Aaron Rodgers and the Packers throw up a performance like this now than say, for instance, sometime later on, late in the season or in the playoffs. So get this bullshit out of your system. Do it now. There's plenty of time for you to recover. And it starts by playing the Detroit Lions, a team that you should be able to work out some of the deficiencies that you showed against one of the top defenses in the NFL, the New Orleans Saints. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Buffalo, not going to get too much into that. Here's what I want to get into, because I think anybody who's a halfway decent football fan who follows the NFL and even follows college football, we, we, we kind of knew that the possibility of this train wreck happening was was great. And I'm speaking about the Urban Meyer experiment. So far, through the preseason, so far through the first game of the season, started off very poorly. Jacksonville lost to one of the worst, if not the worst teams coming into the season this Sunday or this past Sunday. The uh, Houston Texans, 37-21, 37-21 with Tyrod Taylor at the quarterback for the Texans, not Deshaun Watson. The Texans put up 37 points. And as you speak about a team that wasn't ready to play, you speak about a team that was ill-prepared, you speak about a team that was... Um, not coach well coming into this game. You just take a look at some of the miscues of the Jacksonville Jaguars. When you're speaking about having too many men in the huddle lined up incorrectly, not once, but twice in the first half, 
They burned two timeouts in the first quarter to avoid delayed penalties. Jacksonville converted just three times on third down. They punted six times, and Trevor Lawrence threw three interceptions. And Oh, by the way, James Robinson, who rushed for over 1,000 yards in his rookie season, was basically useless or basically not used at all with five rushing attempts. So here we go, man. Trevor Lawrence, there was a stat saying that uh, Trevor Lawrence has never lost a football game a regular season football game in either high school or college. So when he was down there in Georgia in high school, he never lost a game. I guess he played four years, so he never lost a game. Then he comes to uh, Clemson. He might have lost a game in the conference and in the semifinals, but as far as regular season with Clemson, he never lost um, a regular season game. So get ready, Mr. Lawrence, because as long as this concept, as long as this uh, philosophy, as long as this idea that having Urban Meyer as your coach, not only are you going to be losing a lot, the dysfunction will be, um, it seems to be out of control. So it's great to see Trevor Lawrence not losing in college or or um, high school in a regular season, but uh, get used to it. Get used to it in Jacksonville. If all things were great, Jacksonville could have gotten, could have dug up Vince Lombardi and Tom Landry and Chuck Knoll and put those guys on the staff with Joe Gibbs and Bill Walsh and Bill Parcells and everybody else for this season, Jacksonville ain't winning or Jacksonville is going to win very few, even under very few games, even under the best of circumstances. So Lawrence goes 28 of 51 for 332 yards, three touchdowns. As I mentioned before, three interceptions, I don't know, man. We we better go ahead. The, the, the team looked dysfunctional. The team looked ill-prepared. This is not a, this is not a good way to start the career of a guy who many people, as far as your quarterback is concerned, is has the talent of being a generational great quarterback. Man, you have got yourself a gem. You have got yourself a winning lottery ticket if you're the Jacksonville Jaguars. You need to do everything humanly possible to make sure this guy has the best opportunity to reach his expectations, to reach his potential, to reach his talent. And bringing in a flipping college coach who hasn't spent one second in any capacity whatsoever in the NFL is foolhardy, mind-blowingly ridiculous, and head-scratchingly stupid. And in my honest opinion, I mean, doggone, man. I mean, again, I mean, Jacksonville, really, if you take a look at it, Jacksonville was one of these squads that said, you know what, man, we have a lot of good things going before everything was put down in terms of Urban Meyer becoming the coach of the Jaguars. I mean, you had the situation where, yeah, you had the number one pick, which means Trevor Lawrence, a generational talent, was going to be your quarterback. You had a lot of cap space. You had a lot of uh, young players that showed promise. You have, you know, th- those situations right there. Now, you're you're in a conference, you're in a division uh, where, you know, you can be dominant if everything falls into place as you take a look at the dysfunction which is happening with the Houston Texans and others. So everything was lined up for Jacksonville to have the potential to really start building something where three or four or five years down the road, you can mimic maybe something like what the Dallas Cowboys did when Jimmy Johnson uh, first came in as the coach and Jerry Jones bought the team and fired Tom Landry and brought in Jimmy Johnson. And then he traded Herschel Walker to the Minnesota Vikings and drafted Troy Aikman and drafted Michael Irvin and drafted Emmitt Smith and drafted Russell Maryland and drafted um, all of these Darren, Darren Woodson and all of these guys who would be the cornerstone, who would be the foundation for the first half of the 1990s, the 
Dallas Cowboys being a semi-dynasty, a mini-dynasty. In fact, the last time the Dallas Cowboys were close to being relevant in the NFL was that time during the 1990s. But, you know, this is a situation where you have that type of potential to dream that big because of the fact that you have Trevor Lawrence on your team, because of the fact that being in the Jacksonville market, you have the advantage of wooing and enticing free agents to come play in a state where there is no state income tax. You do have a good fan base if the team is winning. You do have young players with talent that can do something. You have all of these things lined up for you. And at the head of the head of the table or at the leading the charge, you have a guy in Urban Meyer who has no no clue so far whatsoever of what it takes not just to be a successful NFL coach, just to be competent. There's a story that was written by CBSSports.com writer Jason Lacanforia, and he said the Urban Meyer era, as E-R-A, begins amid uh, turbulent and discord, and Jaguars' morale has already suffered. And he said, according to sources, there have been repeated issues with other coaches on staff with Meyer temper and lack of familiarity with the ebbs and flows of the NFL calendar rubbing the Jacksonville Jaguars staff and players the wrong way. There is a disconnect at times between the members of the staff with extensive pro experience and those who lack it, and morale has suffered as the Alberts have continued. His fiery remarks to players and coaches after games have already struck many as bizarre. So what a source with direct knowledge of the daily operations within the organization said that uh, he has everyone looking over his shoulder already. He He becomes unhinged way too easily. And he doesn't know how to handle losing even in the preseason. He loses it and wants to take over the drills himself. It's not good. Didn't we know all this? Didn't we know all this? This is like hiring a kleptomaniac to guard the uh, candy store and then being shocked and amazed when you come into work the next day and all the candy's gone. I mean, didn't we see all this? How many times did Urban Meyer say, I got to step away from coaching, I got to retire from coaching because the stress of coaching itself has lent me to health problems? And this was a guy who was winning 80, 90% of his games, and now he's going to be going to one of the worst teams as far as record-wise in the league? What do you think was going to happen? An old dog can't change his spots, man. This man is damn near over 55 years old. He ain't going to change. All of a sudden now he's like, well, yeah, now I've learned my lesson and now I understand what's going on. And now, you know, I can, I feel that, you know, with meditation and yoga and Buddhism and all this other bullshit, I don't know, but you know, now, now I think I can handle it. How in the world can you handle losing when you've never been able to handle losing before? It's just not possible. It's just, it's just absolutely ridiculous. Oh, and you're going to try to figure this out while you're coaching the hardest league as far as football is concerned on the planet, and you're taking over a team that won only one game the year before and is in a rebuilding mode despite the fact that the young talent and the franchise quarterback, the generational great quarterbacks you're going to have available to draft, you still think that you're going to be able to go ahead and be able to correct your weaknesses while you're losing week after week in a profession that you you have no idea what you're doing as far as being a professional football coach? You can't do it with these folks, man. You can't do it with these guys who all throughout college has had success doing it their way. 
Why would they not think I'm just going to go to the next level and continue to do it my way? Why? Because at Bowling Green it worked, then I went to Utah, then it worked, then I went to Florida, then it worked, then I went to Notre Dame, then it worked. Why wouldn't it work when I go to uh, Jacksonville? It's worked everywhere else. At the very least, prove it to me that what I'm doing is wrong. Because if you take a look at my record, if you take a look at my championships, if you take a look at my resume, you take a look at my one loss record, obviously I'm doing something right. Whole different sport, my man. And you should know that. You know that better than me. So for you not to, uh, for you not to be able to adjust, it shows a character flaw, man. It shows a character weakness. You knew what you were getting into. You knew what patience you had to have. You knew what you were going to be set up for, and you still can't handle it. You're still not listening to anybody. You're still not listening to the people that you put in place to let you learn how to do the thing as far as the pro level is concerned. Unacceptable, inexcusable. This is not going to end well. Urban Meyer is going to be the Jerry Tarkinian. Remember when Jerry Tarkinian left UNLV and um, he went to coach the San Antonio Spurs? And I think he went 11 and 20 and he was like, I just can't take this anymore. I've, I've never lost 20 games. I've never, I haven't lost, I, I, don't, I don't lose 20 games unless we're talking about four or five years, you know, down the road. I mean, this season's barely to his halfway point. And I'm already at 20 losses. I can't take this. I can't bear this. This was a huge mistake. Urban Meyer, I think, is going to find out that he made a huge mistake because then now we're talking about a man who has health problems. So if he's already getting stressed out, if he's already losing it, if he's already building a culture and a morale, which is low, which is based on uh, not having confidence, which is based on walking on eggshells, which is based on other employees not trusting anybody. When you're speaking about the coach and the player not building any type of relationship that's built on trust, built on belief, built on respect. How in the world is this going to get better? And if you're Jacksonville, come on, man, you've got yourself what could be a generational great quarterback. Did you Do you need to see what happened to Andrew Luck? Do you need to see what happened to him in terms of a guy, the last great generational quarterback who went to a sorry football team and a sorry organization? Is that going to be the case with um, Trevor Lawrence? Are you going to ruin this man's career? Are this is what we're talking about? Well, so far, you're off to a great start by the uh, coach that you hired. There's plenty of really good coaches out there that would love the opportunity to coach Trevor Lawrence. And guess what? They have experience. They have the pedigree. They have the knowledge. They have the patience. They have the hubris. And they have the ability to get it done. Why are you going to do it with um, Urban Meyer? What, to sell tickets? The Celtics, that's the deal because he's a guy in Florida and people from Florida love uh, Urban Meyer. So they'll come out and see him. They're really going to come out and see Urban Meyer stand on, the, stand on the sidelines and lose his mind while his team is getting embarrassed with a record after 11 games of 2-9. and nine. That's going to pack the stadium. That's going to get the fan base riled up. That's going to move merchandise and season tickets. Okay, whatever. The con, you know, those guys who own that team, they know a lot more about this than I do. So whatever, man. Good luck to you. But uh, big mistake. The mistake is going to get worse. And with Urban Meyer and the Jacksonville Jaguars and Trevor Lawrence, I don't see this relationship in any way, shape, or form getting any better. <laughs>
Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. Finish talking about what's happening in the NFL. Good week one. Entertaining week one. Glad that I saw it week one. Now football is in high gear as far as me watching is concerned. Week one. Now my next four months, five months is set as far as Saturdays and Sundays are concerned. Football getting back into the play. Football dominating my weekend. Football Taking all of my time for the most part on Saturdays and Sundays back to the routine, which I've known for over 30 years, a routine in which I absolutely love, the Red Zone Channel. Thank you very much. Eight hours of nonstop commercial-free football. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. And I'm quite sure, especially the fantasy players and the gamblers are also in high cotton in terms of uh, watching those games. But yeah, so I went over and talked about what was happening in the NFL. Now to placate my brothers and sisters who are college football fans, those down South, those in the Northwestern part of the country, those in the Midwest, those in the Western Pennsylvania area, those all over the country. Going to go ahead now and talk about what happened in week two concerning college football. Yeah, I'm going to get to Ohio State losing to Oregon. Yeah, I'm going to get to Iowa and the Iowa State game. Yeah, I'm going to get to Clay Helton now being put back on the hot seat after that uh, putrid performance by USC against Stanford. I'll, I'll get into all that, but I want to start with some of the ranked teams from last week that lost or had, had some things they had to work on after opening week. Let's say they had to regroup. Now, luckily, we, we talk about the NFL, and we talk about the fact that, hey, you know what, in the NFL, you have three preseason games before everything gets started. In college football, you have preseason games without them being called preseason games. You have exhibition-type games without them actually being exhibition games. This week, next week, and probably the week after this, you're going to be seeing a lot of the ranked teams in the country. You're going to be seeing a lot of the top 10, top 5 teams in the country play quote-unquote exhibition games, play quote-unquote preseason games. Yeah, unlike exhibition and preseason games in the NFL, these in college football actually count. But when you're speaking about the level of competition that the schools like Oklahoma and Alabama and Georgia and Clemson and then Iowa and uh, Texas A&M and Cincinnati and Notre Dame and Penn State and Florida, all these teams that are, you know, ranked in the top five, top 10, top 15. Now is going to be the time for these guys to work on their weaknesses. Now is going to be the time for these guys to start playing the cannon cannon fodder of inferior talent that is going to be placed before them, pay them that six-figure check. Thank you very much for giving us the ability to work on all the things that we need to work on. So when we play the Alabamas, when we play the Georgias, when we play the Clemsons, when we play the Ohio States, when we play those type of schools, we'll be ready. That's what the UABs, that's what the schools in the MEAC and the SWAC and schools in the Mountain West and schools, you know, in the low tier Division One football conferences, that's their duty. That's their job. They go ahead and they get their school ready. They get uh, the school that they're playing ready to play higher competition and they get a nice fat check to make sure that their athletic department still stays intact, especially when you're speaking about the historically black colleges and university universities. Yeah, they'll get their asses blown out. Yeah, you'll, you'll see scores from schools in the MEAC and the SWAC when they play the Power Five 
conference schools, you'll see some embarrassing scores, and you'll see some head-scratching scores, and you'll see some scores where you say, "Why? Why in the hell would you go ahead and you put and when you would you, you would put your student athletes who are completely overmatched and inferior to the teams that you're playing right now?" And it doesn't have to be Alabama. It doesn't have to be a top five, top ten school. Hell, what was it, a year ago or a couple of years ago? It had to be a couple of years ago because of COVID. So a couple of years ago, I think Howard lost to Maryland like 84 to nothing or some nonsense like that. Maryland. We're not talking about Clemson or Ohio State or Oklahoma. Maryland. A run-of-the-mill average to sometimes below average Big Ten school. 84 to nothing. We see Alabama. You know, sometimes with Alabama State and, and some others go to the woodshed and, and beat the brakes off them folks. I've always I've always said, man, you know, the black community is always sitting there talking about, you know, police brutality and, you know, criminal justice reform and prison reform and, you know, all these type of things, which are true, which are true, which are true, which are true, no doubt about it. We need to be shouting. We need to be screaming. We need to be marching. We need to be doing whatever we can. We need to be voting. We need to be doing whatever we need to do to correct those injustices that are still happening. But you know what? Some more injustices in terms of uh, college athletics are concerned. Man, why in the world are we... I don't know how much money Howard, North Carolina, A&T, uh, Tennessee State, Al- uh, schools from the SWAC and MEAC. I don't know how much you guys are getting paid for you to um, get your asses whooped by some of these uh, Power 5 conferences. But if y'all ain't making seven figures, man, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Something is really wrong. If not seven figures, damn, man. Hopefully y'all getting somewhere, somewhere around seven to 800,000. If you're speaking about schools that make money, you know, that are printing money, like schools like Texas or Texas A&M or Ohio State or Alabama or something like that, then they're only paying you 200 to 250 to 300 to $400,000 for you to um, make the drive up there, for you to get shellacked like that. And you're only making the same amount of money that some of these Power 5 conferences, some of these big-time football programs are are paying five-star athletes to come to their school? Something's wrong, man. Something's wrong. Angela Rye, where are you? Roland Martin, where are you? Van Jones, where are you? Come on, Jamel Hill, where are you? We need you. Somebody needs you in terms of saying, hey, man, I understand that uh, the SWAC and the MEAC, these schools are at your beck and call in terms of, hey, look, man, Alabama, Maryland, these guys, they give us the money that we need to keep these athletic programs running. We need them. So, yeah, I don't like getting beat 84 to nothing. I don't like Clemson beating up on South Carolina State 70 to 7. I don't like seeing, you know, the historical black and Black uh, uh, colleges and universities getting their ass whooped and being embarrassed. I don't like to see Morgan State getting embarrassed. I don't like to see Norfolk State getting embarrassed. I don't like to see all them schools getting embarrassed. But, man, without it, we don't have uh, a golf program. We don't have a baseball program. We don't have a gymnastics program. We don't have a softball program. We don't have a swimming and diving program. I don't even know if those schools even have those programs, for all I know. We don't have the facility to even try to compete with the Division II schools to get kids to come into our programs and come into our universities. So, yeah, we got to take the ass whooping to uh, get them checks. Okay, I understand that. But if you're only doing that for 300000 man, something's screwy. Something's wrong. Something is really wrong. 
And as I mentioned before, you see these schools, you see these power five schools and these power five conferences making these, making the money they type of make, making the money that they're making. They can't pay you more than 600, 700,000, somewhere around there. That's wrong, man. That's wrong. Now I know there is no other alternative. I mean, it's not like the SWAC and the MEAC are going to say, okay, we're not going to play you guys anymore because $200,000, $300,000, somewhere around that range is better than nothing. So take it or leave it. But damn, I wish there was another alternative. Again, maybe put some type of pressure on these schools to say, hey, man, if you're going to go ahead and use our squads to make yourselves better so you can win more games and you can win more championships and the coaches can get more money and and your enrollment can go up at these uh, Power 5 schools and tuition can get higher because the enrollment of the school is higher because of the success of the football and basketball teams. If you're going to be using us as part of the advancement of those things, we need more than $300,000 to uh, go up there and lose 72 to nothing. So that's one of the things in terms that I've always been a proponent of in terms of this disparity between the black colleges and universities when they go up and they get their asses whooped by the uh, schools and the power five conferences, something needs to be done about the payout it needs to be a lot more. I mean, a swack in the MEAC school. If you double the appearance fee for those guys, do you know how much farther that can go in terms of improving their um, situation, improving their financial situation at a Southern or a Grambling or something like that? I mean, damn, you know, we're always talking about, yeah, we need to do better and we need to work harder and we need to be more uh, looking out for the black colleges and universities and blah, blah, blah. Well, man, say it with your actions. Don't say it with your words. Paying North Carolina A&T $200,000 to lose 56 to nothing to uh, North Carolina or, or, or 63 to nothing, North Carolina Central, going on the road and getting blasted like that by uh, by an NC State or by a Wake Forest or something like that. Not fair, not right, shouldn't be happening. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wall is so glad that you could be with us. So basically all that was, all that speech, those thoughts, those opinions were to set up the fact that week two, we saw a, we saw a whole lot of teams that needed to get right, that needed to uh, improve, use the inferior inferior talent that they had at their disposal this week to go ahead and start building some good habits, start building a routine of consistency of excellence, start building and growing and improving on some of the deficiencies and weaknesses that they showed when they were playing teams with much better competition. For instance, um, Georgia ranked number two this week. Yeah, they won last week over Clemson 10 to three, but it was a very ugly game. Not too much offense. Not very dynamic in terms of the offense was concerned with um, Georgia. Now, again, I understand that Clemson, when we're speaking about defense, is the elite. And you're not going to be seeing, if you're a Georgia fan, you're not going to be seeing that kind of defense played at that high of a level. And when they played the beginning of the year, just by continuing the reps and continuing to play, the offense for Georgia is not going to look that inept and incompetent at times. But... You know what? It's always nice after a game like that when you can break down the film and you can watch the film and you can see the deficiencies and you can see the weaknesses, what went right and what went uh, wrong. You can go ahead and then apply some of these things to get better for the later for, for later on in the season by playing a school like, oh, I don't know, University of Alabama, Birmingham, which Georgia did this past weekend, which um, they scored some offensive touchdowns and won 56-7 in the process. Georgia 
had a they had 559 total yards, 376 came by the passing numbers. Stetson Bennett, who was filling in for an injured JT Daniels, threw for 288 yards, 10 of 12 completions. He threw he threw three touchdown passes. Those touchdown passes were 73, 89, and 61 yards. Now we understand when they get in the SEC play, we understand if they're fortunate enough to get into the college football semifinals that they're not going to have the ability to score with such ease we understand that Stetson Bennett is not going to be the starting quarterback again JT Daniels missed the game because of injury against UAB something told me something would tell me something would uh, give me the impression would give me the thoughts and opinions that if Georgia this week was playing someone of a higher caliber if Georgia was playing one of the better teams in a conference game that somehow, someway, JT Daniels would have gave it a shot. But because they were playing UAB, they could go ahead and throw in Stetson Bennett, have him throw for 288 yards on 10 completions, and uh, win very easily. So again, is this going to be, when you take a look at the score, when you take a look at the total yardage, when you take a look at the passing yardage, when you take a look at the three big plays that happened in the game, is that going to be something where, okay, once we get to... uh a higher level of competition that will just continue these things, especially with a backup quarterback. No, but it gives Georgia the evidence. It gives Georgia the confidence. It gives Georgia something to say, hey, we've done this before. And while Florida isn't UAB, we've shown that we can do this before. We have the talent. We have the scheme. We have the player to do it. Let's just go ahead and do it because against UAB, we have done this before. So again, using cannon fodder, using inferior talent, using teams of lesser talent to get themselves the confidence, the foundation, and work out some of the kinks so they can go ahead and say, hey, you know what, against a team like a team like Texas A&M or a team like Tennessee or a team like Florida, okay, we might not have 539 total yards and we might not have 376 yards passing. We might not have our quarterback throw for 288 yards on 10 completions. But I tell you one thing, thank you very much, UAB, when we have against Florida 398 total yards and 273 yards passing and throwing for two uh, touchdowns of a high quality of over 50 yards. And our quarterback, JT Daniels, is tw- is 21 of 29 with, with about two or three touchdowns and no interceptions. Thank you very much, UAB, because you were the tracks that put this train on them so we can lead to those type of performances and achievements. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Number four, Oklahoma. Blew out Western Carolina, 76 to nothing. Can't wait to hear what my main man, Eric G. and Pat Jones on the Pat Jones Show, which you can hear in Tulsa, Tulsa Sports Talk Radio, from 11 to 1 a, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. their time. Interested to hear what they're going to be talking about with this blowout. Oklahoma's defense, of course, played much better. Then they did against Tulane, shut out Western Carolina, allowed only 178 total yards. Western Carolina was 4 of 18 on 3rd and 4th down conversions. They caused 3 turnovers, so good, nice little confidence build for Oklahoma. Get their swag back, get their confidence back on the offensive side of the ball. More, uh, more consistency was shown by Oklahoma. Spencer Rattler went 20 of 26, 243. 
five touchdowns. Team had 277 yards rushing on 38 carries. Very well. Thank you very much, Western Carolina. Now, Oklahoma next week is going to play against Nebraska. This is supposed to be, you know, the rematch of the game of the century, 1971, and Johnny Rogers and winning the Heisman Trophy and blah, blah, blah. This was unbelievable. This, that, and the other. this game is not going to come anywhere close to the importance or the competitive le- competitive level that the 1971 game uh, uh, was played at. And let me tell you something. If it is, then Oklahoma's got some real problems. This should be another strong showing by Oklahoma from a reeling Nebraska team that they're going to be playing. They should have no problems with Nebraska going forward. And again, playing Western Carolina, and especially on defense, getting that swag back, especially that shutout that happened, is going to do wonders for Oklahoma moving forward. Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about some of the get back as far as confidence is concerned with some of the teams, some of the top ranked teams that struggled a week before, some of the deficiencies, some of the weaknesses that they're trying to work out uh, during this season, during this week in which they've played, which they're playing inferior talent. Mentioned before about the HBCUs being cannon fodder for the uh, top tier schools, the Power Five schools to get themselves right. Well, Clemson, 49-3 to over South Carolina State. Clemson's quarterback. Oh, let me see what I'm going to do here. Let me see what I'm going to do here. Everybody stand back. Drum roll, please. DJ Ui Ungale. If I mess up, I apologize. He passed for 171 yards, one touchdown, one interception. He was 14-24 to passing. A little bit better. A little bit better. I think that uh, after the... Games that he had uh, last season as a true freshman filling in for Trevor Lawrence where he was dynamic in some instances against, um, I think it was Wake Forest. Did they play against Wake Forest or Georgia Tech the first game that uh, Uwe Ungalele started? And then against Notre Dame, he threw for over 300 yards and such. So I think we're waiting for DJ to have those type of numbers. But, you know, again, South Carolina State, so... 14 or 24, 171 yards, really because of the team, because of the talent difference, because of the lopsidedness of the score. There was no need for uh, DJ to start throwing the ball all over the yard for 40 or 50 times. So, look, Clemson led at halftime 35-3. to Again, for the offense that didn't score at all against Georgia and looked completely inept, seeing the ball go into the end zone seven times, seeing uh, DJ throw for a touchdown and have some good passes and have some good uh, things to say in terms of 14 of 24 for 171 yards. It's going to uh, do Clemson wonders, especially when you have to explain to Clemson if your Dabo Sweeney quite, quite surely has that, look, you know what? Yeah, the game against Georgia was ugly. And yeah, we lost. And yeah, we're not used to losing, especially in the uh, regular season. Yeah, we're one of the premier teams. We're right up there with the Ohio States and the Alabamas and the Oklahomas and such, which means that, you know what, you can make the strong argument over a four or five year period in the most recent history that we were the most dominant program in college football, not Alabama. So yeah, to lose like we did, to look so inept like we did, to have the offensive line be as putrid as they have looked not only in the game against Georgia, but also in the national semifinals against Oklahoma, excuse me, against Ohio State, where Trevor Lawrence got the shit kicked out of him 
it's good to put up these type of numbers. It's good to put up this type of score. Yeah, South Carolina State is nowhere close to the type of teams that Clemson is going to be facing if they want to win a championship. But again, building good habits, building a good routine. It starts with a preseason game, South Carolina State inferior talent. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Number 10, Iowa, over number 9, Iowa State, 27-17 in this rivalry game, which has spanned 66 games. Iowa now has a six-game winning streak over Iowa State. Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-day. Um, I got to admit, when I was watching this game Saturday, I fell in and out of sleeplessness. Because this kind of reminded me of a baseball game. Slow, dragging, no rhythm, no flow to the game. Seemed like the game would last forever. It's like I woke up multiple times thinking, oh shit, did I miss the entire game? And this was only like midway through the second quarter. And I fell asleep near the end of the first. There was no rhythm. It was like when you watch a baseball game in the seventh inning. And it's relievers versus relievers in terms of the pitching. And every fucking time that a reliever catches the ball back from the catcher, he has to adjust his crotch, he has to spit, he has to uh, adjust his cap, he has to walk around the mound, he has to take a deep breath, he has to look for a sign, he has to pause, he has to pause, he has to pause, he has to pause, and then he throws the pitch and either it's a ball strike or a foul ball, and the catcher takes it and throws it back to the relief pitcher, and the same shit starts all over again, and you're sitting there saying, Jesus, fucking A, can you just catch the ball, get the sign, throw the ball, fucking please. But no, every single goddamn time this guy gets the ball, walk around the mound, adjust his crotch, adjust his hat, spit, Take a deep breath, look around, look at the catcher, look at the catcher, get the sign, get the sign, get the sign, take a deep breath, concentrate, 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 look back at second base, concentrate, concentrate, then throw the pitch and we do the routine over and over and over and over again until I'm taking a brick and throwing it through my TV set because I'm just so sick and tired of it. Sorry, we live in an ADHD society where that type of shit is not going to be happening with the masses, especially the younger generation. I digress. What I'm trying to say is the Iowa-Iowa State game was slow and boring. Now, some people might find it fabulously boring, entertainingly boring, lovely boring, great football boring. Okay, for me, it was boring. And look, I'm not a guy who's you know, who objects to a game where, it's, where defense is the, uh, is the star of the show. I'm not looking for every game being a Big 12 uh, type of score where, you know, the, regular, the final score is like 72 to 56. I enjoy a slobber knocker. I enjoy defense. I, I enjoy physical play and all those type of things. But, man, you're just talking about as far as Iowa and Iowa State is concerned, two inept offensives, offenses getting together. And uh, that's what it reminded me of. That's what happened. Teams combined for 15 total punts. Ran the ball 66 times, despite averaging only 2.3 yards per carry. Iowa on offense. Iowa, who put up 27 points and won the game on offense. They had 173 total yards. They averaged 1.7 yards per carry. They had only 23 yards in the second half. Seven of those yards came by the by air, by passing. And they went 4 of 15 on third down conversions and had only 11 first downs. And they won the game going away, scoring 27 points. So you're going to ask, how did a team 
with only 173 total yards, 11 first downs, and only 23 yards in the second half where they scored the majority of their points. How exactly did they win this game? Well, they forced four turnovers without committing any. Defensive back Mike uh, Matt ha- ha- Hankins had a pair of interceptions. Jack Campbell returned a fumble six yards for a touchdown. And they took advantage of strong defense and the ineptness of Iowa State on offense. Brees Hall, who for Iowa State was supposed to be the bee's knees as far as running backs is concerned, had only 69 yards on 16 carries. I don't know what's up with him because for the first two games of the season against Northern Iowa and now Iowa, he's averaging just 3.6 yards per carry on 39 carries, which equates to 141 yards. Brock Purdy, the starting quarterback for Iowa State, at least for now. I don't know what's going to be happening because he was benched midway through the fourth quarter, but Brock Purdy, he is who we thought he was. Just your average, vanilla, decent college quarterback. Like many others in the game today, that's just not talented or dynamic enough to be a quarterback on a championship-winning team. I mean, you you can take Brock Purdy, and you can put put him on Penn State, on Wisconsin, on any other team in the Big Ten, and he's just that guy. He's just that decent, average College football player. Talent-wise, for being in a Power 6 conference, he's average. For a guy who has an impact on winning a championship, he he, he ain't that guy. And Iowa State was supposed to be returning all of these veterans and these senior leadership guys and these, you know, from a team that uh, was, you know, on the cusp of being really, really good a couple of years ago. I mean, they, they are who they are. Iowa State. It's Iowa State. That, that that's it. And Matt Campbell, look, I'm not I don't tell any coach or any player that you need to leave or you need to go somewhere else, this, that, and the other, because if you really think about it, Matt Campbell, just like David Cutcliffe at Duke and just like uh David Shaw in Stanford, hey look, man, you know, um Matt Campbell can win seven, eight games for the rest of his coaching career and coach thirty years and make a couple of million dollars. He can live in Ames, Iowa, which I don't know what the tax structure is, but I'm quite sure three or four million dollars goes a long way if he beats Iowa once or twice or three times every six or seven or eight years. I mean, they'll they'll they'll, they'll, they'll put a stadium. They'll they'll, they'll uh, name the stadium field after after this guy. They'll put they'll build a statue of the guy. If he has that type of success, David Cutcliffe wasn't going to win anything at Duke. He was never going to compete with the Clemsons and all those type of things. But hey, the uh, administration and the fan base, they knew that. All they were doing was waiting around for show, uh, for Coach Krzyzewski to start the uh, basketball program and have Duke do their thing on the basketball court. So if Duke's going to win five or six or seven games a year of football, who cares? Same thing with uh, Stanford and Davis, with Davis Shaw. Hey man, Stanford, they're all about, you know, graduating awesome people who are going to do awesome things because they're awesomely smart. I mean, they're not interested in having the same type of football success as an Ohio State or as an Alabama. That's not their identity. That's not what they're known for. I'm not saying they wouldn't welcome that opportunity, but they're not going to be firing a guy and David Shaw who wants to stick around if he's going to be winning eight, nine, ten games every you know two or three years and average about seven or eight wins over a period of 10 or 12 years. David Shaw... As long as he wins seven, eight, nine games a year, he could stay there at Stanford forever. And I think that could be the main thing with Matt Campbell. Matt Campbell is thinking, why the hell should I go to uh, 
another school in the uh, in, a, in a Power Five conference. Why should I take an LSU job? Why should I take a Michigan job? Where if I win ten and eleven games, it's not going to be good enough because those fools think that I should be competing for national championships every year when I can stay at Iowa State and uh, you know I can win seven or eight or nine games a year. And the fan base and the community, they'll be dancing in the street like Martha and the Vandellas and dancing on the ceiling like, like Lionel Richie. Well, maybe the wrong genre of music for Ames, Iowa. But for the most part, they'll be extremely happy and satisfied by those results. And I can raise my children here. I can, you know, my wife loves it out here. We can really put down some roots and, you know, I could be a living legend. Who knows? I don't know what Matt Campbell, maybe Matt Campbell doesn't like living in a big city. Maybe Ames, Iowa and Matt Campbell were right for each other, but... You know, Iowa State, similar to Oklahoma State with Mike Gundy years ago. Hey, every three or four years, you're not going to be getting four or five-star recruits for the most part. So three or four years when a pretty good recruiting class becomes juniors and redshirt juniors and redshirt, redshirt seniors and such. Yeah, you can win nine or ten games. You can be ranked anywhere between number six and number 11 in the country. And you can pretend to be a threat to uh, some of the top-tier teams in the conference and sometimes in the nation. You're not going to win a national championship. This success is not going to be consistent. But Iowa is showing you a Kirk, uh, with uh, Kirk French. You know, go ahead and win eight or nine games a year. We'll, we'll keep you around at the coach forever. And so that's what Iowa State and Matt Campbell, you know, that's what uh, that's what the Iowa State program is. So they came in ranked number eight and number eight in the country. But these guys who are veterans of college football, they were still three and four star recruits, or they were still two and three star recruits. And two and three star recruits ain't beating four or five star recruits. The level or the number of four or five star recruits that the that the big boys get. So you know. I mean, People were speaking about, you know, the winner of this game has the opportunity, might have a chance to uh, play for the national championship. With Iowa, hey, look, it's only two games. They did a number on Indiana 34-6 to last week. They can win the rest of their games. Iowa, they can, they can do that. Because they got Kent State, Colorado State, at Maryland. Then they play uh, uh, Penn State, which is ranked number 11. Then they're at Wisconsin, ranked number 18. At Northwestern, Minnesota, Illinois, then at Nebraska. They don't have to play Ohio State. Maybe this is a situation because of the number of ranked teams that they play that maybe they will, you know, show some, get, get some love and get some respect. I doubt it because if you take a look as far as championship contenders are concerned, Wisconsin, Penn State, the other two ranked teams that they play, in terms of their chances of making the championship, chances of them um, being in the football playoffs, not not uh, not very good. So we'll see, we'll see. But uh, you know, Iowa State, Iowa State, they are who they thought they were. And Iowa, hey, you know what? This is their year where they can do well. But do I expect them to be true championship contenders when everything is all said and done? No. But then again, it's based off of two games. We'll have to wait and see. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. USC getting hammered embarrassed at home by Stanford, 43-28. A game in which the score at no point was as close as the game itself indicated. Tanner McGee for Stanford. Interesting. Passed for two touchdowns. Rushed for another score. His first collegiate start went 16-23. 234 yards. Two touchdowns. No interceptions. He looked good. 
He looked really good. Nathaniel Pete, the running back, scored on an 87-yard run in the first quarter, finished the game on six carries with 115 yards. So there's a little spark. There's a little juice. There's a little athletic ability right there that, that uh, Stanford uh, touted in a very small way. The Cardinal went 6 of 11 on 3rd and 4th downs and had almost 400 yards of total offense. And you have to remember, if you saw them play last week against Kansas State, where they had 13 first down and first downs and only 233 total yards, huge, huge, huge improvement from last week. So, hey, man, Stanford looking good, looking good. They rebounded well. They had a 29-point lead in the fourth quarter. And with the uh, ninth victory over UFC, USC in the last 14 meetings, only mentioning that because, again, something like that, David Shaw can go another five or six years of mediocrity and still keep his job. So, look, with a bad night for USC, and now, and now, and now, let's play the game. College coaches on the hot seat. Coming in now, your contestant, Representing University of Southern California, the coach that's on the hot seat, Mr. Clay Hilton. His seat is not hot. It's extremely hot. It's burning, baby. The Trojans' nine-game regular season winning streak ended. Keaton Slovis, 27-42, 223 yards. USC listless, unmotivated, unfocused. Not prepared to play against Stanford. Committed nine penalties for 109 yards. London Drake, his game was falling down. Had only four catches for 68 yards. And a meaningless touchdown with about six minutes left to play in the game. So, here we go. Let's go ahead and just start the discussion about Clay Helton's job security. Back at the main topic for this football program. Starting off conference play at home against a competitive rival and losing like he did against Stanford. Unacceptable, inexcusable. Losing a tight, hard-fought game. USC should not be losing to Stanford. USC should not be losing to Stanford. And again, for those guys to come out and play so unmotivated, without any passion, without any direction. At one point, USC was trailing 42-13 to with 9-16 to go. And that didn't even indicate how poorly and unmotivated that team looked. Looked like they halfway gave up. This is USC. That's unacceptable. At home, your season opener, goddamn right, that's unacceptable. No wonder Snoop and um, and Keyshawn are, have had, are fed up with the uh, coaching staff and the head coach uh, at USC. That, that was bad. This is year seven of Clay Helton being the head coach. All right? He has a 46-24 and 24 record overall. He's... 36 and 13 in the Pac-12 record. Normally, that shouldn't get you fired, even though Gus Malzone is like, really? <laughs> uh, that's news to me. But uh, look, his tenure at USC, if you just take a look, if you really didn't know, if you really don't follow college football that much, if you take a look at Clay Helton and the fervor and the anger and the venom and everything, as far as Clay Helton being the head coach and how you know, some alumni or these football fans or whatever, the discussion of Clay Helton's job being in jeopardy. If you take a look and you say, how can a guy with a 46-24 and 24 record, 36-13 and 13 in the Pac-12, how can he have so many people so up in arms and aghast that he still has a job? He had back-to-back 10-win seasons from 2016 and 2017 at the coach at USC. He won the Rose Bowl in 2016. Last season, he was 5-0 in the regular season. Yeah, COVID, and yeah, because of COVID, he didn't have a preseason. He didn't have a uh, he didn't have to play all the uh, teams in conference, but he did go 
5-0 and in the regular season before losing to Oregon 31-24 in the conference championship game. What's what's going on here? Why is it everybody? Why is everybody so like gung ho and just doing everything they can, or you know, expressing such you know strong opinions about Clay Helton needs to be fired? Well, because just like Gus Malzone found out at Auburn, even though he beat Nick Saban in a span of time a, a, a lot more than the other coaches had over that period of the time when Alabama with Nick Saban was, um, you know, having their dominance the fact that man sometimes it's all about perception and usc feels that as a football program they should be on the same level or near the same level as the elite programs in in the country as far as football is concerned so they they feel they should be in terms of winning conference championships and those type of things they should be they should be to the pac-12 what clemson is to the acc and Clay Helton is not that kind of a coach. If you're going to have, if you're going to get a coach who is going to be coaching a a program where those are the expectations, Clay Helton ain't the one. Now look, on you know February of 2018, former USC athletic director Lynn Swan gave Helton a contract extension, which befuddled everybody because there was really no need to do that. And the contract runs through the 2023 college football season. And after he got that contract, hey, man, he was, uh, Helton was a combined 12 and 13. So it was kind of like you signed a contract and oops. And now there's a situation where, look, man, the buyout would be $20 million. And after all the shit that USC has been through, all the bad publicity that uh, USC has been through, the fact that USC had not been uh, flagged by the NCAA for any violations or anything like that when USC is going through some of their scandals concerning um, people being admitted to their schools and that type of thing. Hey, man, play Helton as far as putting the school in any type of danger or any type of violations or any type of embarrassment in that situation, out of sight, out of mind. So he's, he, he's almost being rewarded for that on top of the fact that the buyout would be somewhere around $20 million. So that, that I guess you could say, plays in Clay Helton's favor on why he hasn't been released or why he hasn't been fired yet in terms of being the coach at uh, USC. But on top of, you know, all of those things, he's just had some bad losses as coach. If you're USC, again, if you're looking to say we are going to be elite, we are going to be one of the top tier programs, we should be competing for championships, we should be, you know, in the top five, top six rankings, along with Oklahoma and you and, um, or, and Ohio State and Clemson and Alabama and Georgia and all these type of folks, we should be right up there with them. If the alumni and folks who are really contributing to the program as far as financially is concerned and former USC football players, I mean, if you have those type of expectations for USC, then you can't be getting blown out 52 to six at Jerry World at the beginning of the 2016 season in Alabama. When you came in that season ranked in the top 20, you can't in 2017 be ranked 11th at the time and then lose 49 to 14 at Notre Dame. And then lose to um, Ohio State 24-7 in the Cotton Bowl when you're ranked number 8 in the country that year. You can't go 1-4 in 2019 against ranked teams, including losses to BYU at Washington, getting blown out 56-24 to Oregon, and then losing 49-24 to 
in a bowl game to Iowa. Inexcusable, unacceptable, if you do have those expectations that USC should be somewhere near the same playing field as the elite in college football. So you take all that into account. Hey, man, you know, Clay Helton needs to go in the minds and thoughts of a number of people. Now, he has a schedule to where he could possibly turn this around. Everybody's looking for his head after that loss to Stanford, and I don't blame him. But look, in the remaining schedule for USC, you've got those guys playing at Washington State, Oregon State, at Colorado, Utah, at Notre Dame, Arizona, at Arizona State, UCLA, and BYU. Could winning the Pac-12 South and then beating UCLA be enough for helping to keep his job? I mean, will that keep the Wolves? Will that keep the uh, pitchforks and the weapons away from um, the notion that uh, Clay Helton needs to be fired? I don't know. It depends on what UCLA is going to keep doing. If UCLA keeps playing like they keep playing, then guess what, man? That USC-UCLA match game could be something. And let's say, for instance, that both teams kind of come back down to the medium this could be a situation where this could be the lose and you're definitely fired bowl. If you're speaking about that game between Chip Kelly and UCLA and Clay Helton and USC. I'll end with this. I'll end this segment with this. Here on Wendell's World and Sports, the podcast with yours truly, Wendell Wallace. Clay Helton, I think, is a good coach. Yes, you can't go, you can't build the record and some of the accomplishments that he's had and be a bad coach. If he gets fired, it's not because he's a bad coach. I just don't think that he's the right coach for USC. Again, if 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 USC wants to be an elite program, Clay Helton is not an elite coach. He's a good coach, but he's not elite. I think when everything is all said and done, I think Helton would be a really good fit if he were to stay in a you know if he would if he was to be looking at getting a job in the Power 5 conference if he's less let go by USC. I mean, I think the school of a caliber of, say, for instance, Mississippi State or Kansas State, Wake Forest, uh, Syracuse, North Carolina State, Washington State, Illinois, I think those type of programs, I think, would be a great landing spot. Now, I'm, 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 I know those programs have coaches and stuff. I'm just talking about the type of program where I think Clay Helton would really be good at, would be a really good fit at. Those type of Power 5 schools, where, look, they're not going to be competing with the Alabamas. They're not going to be competing with the, with the competing with the Clemsons or the Oklahomas or the Ohio States. But I think Clay Helton at a school like uh, Illinois or a Washington State or Oregon State or something like that, he can win six or seven, eight games a year and sometimes push it to nine or ten. I think for Clay Helton, that would be a, a great landing spot. And if he's decided not to take a job in the Power Five conferences, I think schools on the caliber of uh, Boise State and SMU, uh, Florida Atlantic, New Mexico, Nevada, Southern Alabama, I think those would be great landing spots. I think those would be great fits for Clay Helton. That's the type of coach I think Clay Helton is. Very few coaches are elite enough to maintain the type of expectations that people from USC are now expecting their coaches to to, to, uh, to uh, have. So I think Helton is, again, a good coach, not an elite coach. But uh, 
there were some other good games this weekend. Texas finding out what it's going to be like when they get to the um, SEC when Arkansas blew the doors off them. Steve Sarkeesian already. I mean, that win versus, Louis, uh, versus Louisiana, who was ranked 23rd at the time, that, that's now gone. That's now over with. So it was a good, uh, good weekend in college football. Iowa, Iowa State put me to sleep. USC in, in Stanford woke me back up. Washington, um, Washington and Michigan. I'll get to that next segment, but that was a that was an interesting game. And if you're a Michigander, if you're a University of Michigan alum, that game should have piqued your interest. The outcome should have piqued your interest. The style of play that Michigan is now putting down, that should pique your interest going forward in this season. Jim Harbaugh maybe starting to turn things around. Maybe, possibly, all those things that we'll get to. But uh, yeah, second week of college football. A lot of teams using the second week, using the inferior talent to uh, improve, to get better, build routines, gain confidence. And the majority of those guys, the majority of those teams did just that. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Final segment of the podcast. Last segment of the podcast. So glad that you could be with us. Thank you very much for for listening. Talked a lot about what's happening week one, opening weekend in the NFL week two. And college football broke down some games. Talked about teams that lost the week before. Top tier teams that either lost the week before or needed some things to uh clean up, improve on. They had the opportunity to do that by playing inferior talent. That's what the college football preseason is all about. And the NFL, the preseason is all about exhibition. It's all about preseason. The games don't count. The cut down, roster spots, all those type of things in college football. They use their preseason to uh, go ahead, pay fat checks to uh, folks to uh, come up and play them and uh, work on some of their weaknesses and enhance some of their strength and to build good work habits and routines and that type of thing without the pressure of them actually winning the football game because of the talent discrepancy between that top tier team that they're playing and the inferior squad that's coming up to collect that paycheck. So their golf team and their swim team and their tennis team at that university or institution or college can exist. So talked about that in the last segment. Now, just very quickly, I want to get to the upset of the day in college football week two, which was the Oregon Ducks 35-28 over Ohio State. I guess you could say for the most part, you saw this coming. If you saw the, if you weren't a fan of the Ohio State Buckeyes and you were a pessimist, you saw this coming the first game with Minnesota, especially when you're speaking about the defense. That was the main reason why the uh, Buckeyes lost. As Ryan Day said at the end of the game, you know, we started off in terms of falling behind and we never really had the opportunity to catch up. And because of that, we never really got in a rhythm. We never really got control of the game. So that was the deal, man. The uh, 
Ducks sealed the win with less than three minutes after quarterback C.J. Stroud for Ohio State overthrew Chris Olive. And the pass was picked off. Ball game. Good to see you. That was the first regular season defeat of Ryan Day as the head coach at Ohio State. He was 22-0 in non-college football playoff games as Ohio State's head coach before this loss. If you remember, the only two losses he has is to Alabama in the national championship game and then to Clemson the year before in the national semifinal game. So it was uh, it was surprising. I, I, I felt it was surprising, especially when you're speaking about Oregon playing without Freshman linebacker Justin Flo, who was sidelined with a boot on on his right foot one week after being named the freshman Pac-12 player of the week. And then, of course, Kayvon Thibodeau missed the game because of an ankle injury. The Ohio State defense, though, man, it was just like, I guess, when you're speaking about an elite squad like Ohio State, I guess you could say that, you know what, when you reload, when you're a program like Ohio State that reloads with great recruiting classes and four and five star recruits and the defense loses some players you're like no big deal because the next wave is coming in and they'll be just fine if you don't believe us take a look at our history hey man this defense for ohio state i don't know how long this transition is going to last after two games after two mediocre game after two inconsistent games against uh minnesota in oregon which the ohio state defensive uh squad has played i don't know if this is going to be a season-long situation i don't know how much more they can improve the talent is there i believe that this is going to be a situation where ohio state is going to resemble more of the oklahoma defenses of the past few years where it's not the talent Definitely ain't the talent. So is it the uh, defensive coordinator? I mean, what's happening with this squad? Because now, man, you take a look at some of these schools in the pack, pack in the uh, Big Ten. Excuse me, and I and I mentioned this before, in terms of Michigan and teams like Michigan, teams like Iowa, where it's kind of like, wait a minute, the strength that they've shown through the past through the first couple of games especially if you're speaking about a squad like Michigan who not only ran all over Western Michigan okay fine Western Michigan no big deal but wait a minute now they ran all over Washington you can ha ha and you can poo poo and you can ridiculous Washington's offense all you want to but that is still a pretty legitimate defense that Washington has a lot sturdier and a lot stout than Ohio State has shown over the last couple of uh, games. And now you're talking about Michigan through through the first two games have each ran over, uh, have run over 300 yards of rushing. Now all of a sudden, man, if I'm a Michigander, if I'm a Michigan alumni, I'm thinking to myself, hey man, we have a shot. There is a blueprint here for how to beat Ohio State, which is run the ball, run the ball, be physical with them. Now you need a dynamic uh, quarterback uh, which Anthony Brown of Oregon was and Minnesota didn't have one and the jury is still out on the type of quarterback that Michigan had but man we're speaking about a team in Ohio State that gave up 505 yards sacked Anthony Brown Oregon's starting quarterback as I mentioned before zero times on 35 passing attempts and Brown rushed 10 times for 65 yards, 17 to 35 for 236 yards and two touchdowns. And Oregon averaged more than seven yards per carry and ran for 269 flipping yards. Threw the ball 35 times, ran the ball 38 times. You compare that with the uh, balance or lack of balance that there was between the run game and pass game of Ohio State where C.J. Stroud, a redshirt freshman starting his second game, threw the ball 54 times, and Ohio State only ran the ball 31 times, averaging only 4 yards per carry. 
I'm telling you, man. I'm telling you. Now, look, you can't put the how much blame you can put. Every, the blame, the blame game goes around for Ohio State. So this is not to say the only reason why that Michigan, excuse me, that the Ohio State lost the game was because of their defense played a big role, but it wasn't the only reason why. I thought overall he played well, but again. Stroud started off a little bit inconsistent and a little bit sketchy for Ohio State. The run game never got going like I thought it should, and that's an indictment a little bit on the offensive line, who I thought was fantastic the week before against uh, Minnesota. But that run defense for Ohio State, again, after after Mohamed Abrahim for Minnesota ran for 163 yards and 30 carries, in three quarters before being injured, or else we could be speaking about Ohio State maybe being 0-2. But Abraham ran for 163 yards in three quarters. Well, C.J. Vernell, the week after that, ran for 161 yards, 34 yards receiving, scored three touchdowns, and ran for a 77-yard touchdown run. So this is a situation. And how many times have I was watching that game did I see Anthony Brown go back, look, 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 look. First receiver wasn't open. Second receiver wasn't open. Third receiver wasn't open. He was still wide open in terms of having a clean pocket to go through his progressions, especially on third down, and uh, find a guy to uh, complete a pass to. Joey Bosa, Nick Bosa, Chase Young, the next great pass rusher, for Ohio State, at least for this season, hasn't been found yet. And it was evident not only against Minnesota, but also even more so against Oregon. Now, luckily for Ohio State in the uh, Big Ten, they're not playing any type of dynamic offenses in terms of quarterbacks are concerned. But still, this run game, or the lack of run defense that Ohio State uh, showed, very alarming, extremely alarming. So on offense, look, Ohio State finished with 612 total yards. Okay, but then again, you take a look at that. 484 yards on 54 pass attempts for Stroud. The discrepancy in the uh, pass-to-run ratio was uh, something that should be concerning. Ohio State was only 2 of 5 on fourth downs and and failing to score on consecutive fourth down drives. So there's some things going on here with Ohio State that definitely need to be fixed. Now, the, the good part is is that, hey, the talent is there. So this shouldn't be a situation where Ohio State should be this putrid on defense, especially when it comes to the run defense. But then again, if you're a pessimist, if you don't like Ohio State, if you're a glass half empty guy, you take a look and you say, well, wait a minute. Weren't they saying this year after year after year with Oklahoma when Oklahoma's defense negated um, um, Lincoln Riley and that offense from being a true championship contender. Now, over a period of time, two or three years, Ohio, uh, excuse me, Oklahoma's defense was horrible. Are we going to be taking a look at this trend starting now for Ohio State? Because again, at Oklahoma, it wasn't the situation where they were, you know, lacking of talent on the defensive end at Oklahoma. They were bringing in their four and five star recruits, but in the Big 12 conference, they were still giving up 50 and 60 points per game. Again, luckily, because of that offense, it bailed them out time and time again. Now, there's no offenses as dynamic in the Big Ten that they are in the Big 12 when Oklahoma was at its lowest during the Lincoln-Riley era with the uh, defense. But still, the lack of... I mean, I don't know. The, 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 the lack of efficiency in controlling the run game through the first two games has to make those who are fans of Michigan smile. 
and smile broadly. Now, for the for the schedule moving forward, look, Ohio State is not going to be playing Wisconsin, a team that plays smash mouth. They're not going to be playing Iowa, a team that can play smash mouth. But they are going to be playing Penn State, a team that utilizes a pretty strong running game. And as I mentioned before, if Michigan continues with that two-headed monster, a quarterback to continue to run the run the ball with the efficiency that they've shown over the first two games, hallelujah, if there's someone looking for a little bit of spice, looking for a little bit of variety, and who's dominating the Big Ten, even if it's for one year, maybe this is the year we can finally get somebody in there that can give Ohio State a real run for his money. So we'll see about that. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. For Oregon, hey, man, when you're out there and you win a game on the road against Ohio State, we don't know how awesome, we don't know how dominating, we don't know how high-level Ohio State is this year, depending upon that defense. Maybe this is a situation where everybody's running rampant on uh, Ohio State's defense, and Oregon just happens to be another one in a long line of teams this year who put up strong numbers as far as the running game is concerned. But this is still a big win for this Oregon program, and kind of saving saving face for the uh, Pac-12 North after the performance they put on the week before. Is Oregon a championship contender? You know, I don't know. Two weeks in, I don't know. They certainly have the schedule now, and now they have that big, they have that big win on their on their resume. If they can continue to go undefeated throughout the regular season, again, if you if you take a look at that schedule that they have, where they're playing next week, Stony Brook, then they go host Arizona, then they're at Stanford, California at UCLA. Colorado at Washington, Washington State at Utah, and then Oregon State. Going to be interesting. It's going to be very interesting the way that shakes out. Um, Stanford looked a lot better against USC. How much of that was just USC just being USC under the Clay Helton era where they usually don't show up for a game or two in a, in a game they're supposed to win? How real is UCLA? How good is LSU, the team that they beat, that made people start thinking, how good is UCLA? How good is uh, Utah playing at Utah? So all of these things are going to uh, be taken into account, which uh, is going to make the uh, rest of the college football season uh, very interesting. There there are no three or four dominant teams, which is fantastic. There are no three or four dominant teams. There is no, well, we know that, uh, you know, at the end of the season that uh, Clemson and Ohio State and Notre Dame is going to be undefeated and la, la, la. So we already know three of these teams. And so which team from the SEC West is going to be able to uh, make that fourth playoff run or, you know, between Oklahoma and uh, somebody else, what five teams are going to be vying for the four playoff spots? I think now we have a situation where there could be as many as eight, nine, ten teams that could be vying for four playoff spots. And the only one that's head and shoulders, heavy favorites to be one of those is Alabama. So if you've got, what, maybe nine or ten teams to figure out who's going to be the other three teams that are going to be in the uh, national semifinal game to win that college football championship. So it makes for a much better. There's not a dominant team. There's not a dominant quarterback. There's not a dominant player. There's not a historical great team or anything like that or there's Look, there's not going to be this historic rivalry or something like that because of the, I don't know, maybe it's just a down year and overall talent, dynamic talent in college football. But parity sometimes makes for a much more refreshing and intriguing and interesting 
college football season than having just two or three or four teams dominate the entire sport for a season, which I've always been, you know, touting for a 12-team playoffs and why I hope the 12-team playoff finally comes around so we can give more teams the opportunity to go ahead and fight and vie and claw for a a playoff. Even if it's a team like Iowa State, even if it's a team like Cincinnati, even if it's a team that really doesn't have a realistic shot of winning the championship, it's just better for college football when their fan base in their region, in their city or their town or their college town feels that they have a true true chance of getting into the tournament because once you get into the tournament anything can happen on any given Saturday in college football all right I am out of here want to thank you very much for listening to the program Wendell's world and sports time for me to enjoy my day you do what you need to do to make your world to make your place to make your neighborhood to make everything that you touch make everything that you talk to to make everything that you come across better Love, peace, unity, harmony, listening, understanding, education is the key. Not for this generation, not for my generation or your generation or the generation before and after ours for the kids and their generation after and after and after. Moving it along with love, peace, unity, harmony for others, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of who you love, regardless of who you uh, pray to, regardless of all those things. Character, moral fiber, love, respect, harmony, peace, and love for everybody. That's what we should be concentrating on. That's what we should be spreading. I'm out. Music. Music.